Please turn now in your Bibles to uh, Revelation 13. We've been in the book of Revelation for some time as we continue our study. Let me begin by asking you the question. Kids, I want to ask you a question. All right, you don't have to speak out loud, but just think, think about this. Do you know what counterfeit money is? Are you familiar with the term counterfeit money? See, there are bad people who make fake money, and then they try to pass it off and spend it like real money. Now, we're not talking about the money that you get out of your Monopoly game at home. We're talking about money that looks real, and people use it to buy real stuff. And when a person uses counterfeit money, he's not actually paying for his purchase. He's really just stealing. He is deceiving people into think that what he's giving them is real when it's actually not. Now, Satan, as we'll see in our text this evening, Satan is, the, is a cosmic counterfeiter. He's a fraud. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. In fact, Jesus said he is the father of lies. He doesn't create fraudulent money to deceive merchants and consumers. He has created a fraudulent power to deceive people, to put their trust in him, a fraudulent religion to deceive people and blind them to the truth of the gospel. And as we see in uh, our text this evening, he even created what we might call a fraudulent trinity to deceive the entire world, composed of the dragon, which is Satan, and the beast from the, from the, uh, from the sea, and the beast from the earth. One interpreter called these three an unholy trio. And Satan deceives men into worshiping this fraudulent trinity, stealing glory that belongs to God alone. And that's what we find in our beastly vision that we'll look at as we read. And please follow as I read in Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems or crowns on its horns and, its, and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captive he goes. To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here's a call for endurance and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, 
so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of, his, of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. This is the word of the Lord. Now, to kind of place ourselves in the overall study of the book of Revelation, this is uh, part of the third cycle of what we've identified as seven cycles of Revelation in this book. Rather than presenting us a, 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 an uninterrupted, uninterrupted chronicle, chronological uh, uh, survey or study of the end times, this is what's going to happen, and then next, and the next, a sequential chronology. Rather, John is giving us the story of this period from the time Jesus has gone back into heaven till he comes again, what one uh, author keeps calling the interadvental period. Mark, Pastor Mark spoke of the two advents this morning, his first coming of Jesus and the second coming. And there are many who call it this, this interadvental period. And so, Revelation presents this, this period of time up until the second coming and the, uh, the creation of the new heaven and the, earth, and the new earth, really in seven different uh, vignettes or seven different images or visions. And it's the same, same events described from different perspectives. In previous cycles, he depicted the effects of the enemy's attacks on the people of God, as well as the judgment of God poured out on the earth. In this cycle, this third cycle, we have a clearer picture of the instigators of those attacks on the people of God. In chapter 12, we looked at the dragon, who uh, is Satan, in his opposition to the people of God, to the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, to the church of the Lord Jesus. And here in chapter 13, we see two of, of Satan's minions, as it were, the beast coming out of the, of, the, of the sea and the beast coming out of the earth. Now, three primary questions probably have arisen in your mind already as I read that text. And the first is, who is, who or what is this beast rising out of the sea? And the second one is, who or what is this beast rising out of the earth? And the third one is, who or what is this number 666, the mark of the beast? What does it represent? Now, again, let me say this. Keep this in your mind. Satan is a deceiver. Satan is a counterfeiter. And that's going to be very important for us understanding what we read here in this chapter. So, let's unpack these three symbols uh, one by one. First of all, the beast coming out of the sea in the first ten verses. What John describes here is a grotesque being emerging from the sea. Verse 1 tells us that he has ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems or crowns on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. Now, again, it's very important to understand the key to understanding Revelation is the Old Testament. I think that was probably easier for for the first century Christians to understand than it is for us because that's all the Bible they had. If they wanted to understand something that seemed unclear and they'd go to the Scriptures, the only Scripture they had was the Old Testament. And these uh, images bring up images from the Old Testament. The beast is described here as really uh, an amalgamation or a conglomeration of the four great beasts that are described in Daniel 7. A lion with eagle's wings, like a bear, like a leopard, but with four wings and four heads. And the fourth is terrifying, exceedingly strong, with great iron teeth and ten horns. And then a little horn, with eyes like a man and a mouth speaking great things. 
So this image here of the beast coming out of the, of, of the, of the sea is, is kind of a combination, a conglomeration of these four beasts. And those four beasts uh, represented ancient pagan kingdoms that attacked and oppressed the people of God. And so we find here the image of attacking and oppressing of God's people in this one beast. But I want you to see this. If Satan is a counterfeiter, then his beast is also a counterfeiter, and he's a counterfeit of the Lord Jesus. He has 10 diadems on his head, or 10 crowns. Chapter 19, verse 12 tells us that on Jesus' head are many diadems, very same word, or many crowns. It says he has blasphemous names on his head, on his heads. And again, chapter 19, verse 12 tells us that Jesus has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. In verse 2, it tells us the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. And that is counterfeited as Satan gives his power and throne and authority to the beast. The beast has a mortal head wound, and yet he lives, which is a counterfeit of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And this, his miraculous recovery is what caused the whole earth to marvel as they followed the beast. Vern Porthras, commenting on this, says, the beast healing is one of the principal features that attracts followers, just as the resurrection of Christ is one of the principal points of evangelistic proclamation. People are amazed. We serve a risen Savior. Well, the beast apparently has risen from the dead, and people are amazed, and they follow him. Verse 4 tells us that worship is given to the dragon as well as to the beast, and the followers sing, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And really, it's kind of a, a counterfeit, a mimicking of the song uh, that we find in Exodus chapter 15 when the children of Israel had crossed over the Red Sea and defeated Pharaoh and his armies. And they sing, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Throughout the book of Revelation, we find worship given to the Father and to the Son. But here in chapter 13, we find that the unconverted world is giving worship to Satan, the dragon and his beast. Verse 7 tells us that the beast makes wars against the saints to conquer them. Well, we read in chapter 19 that Christ makes war against the beast to conquer him. And in that great final war depicted in chapter 19, we find the Lord Jesus and the armies of heaven following in his train, and we find the beast with the kings of the earth and their armies lined up against the Lord. Jesus, the divine warrior, the beast, the unholy counterfeit warrior, the deceiver of the world. Now, there are some who say the beast represents a one-world government. So, any time anything happens at the UN or, or any other, uh, you know, the European Union or whatever, oh, there's the one-world government, it's the beast. Well, it's interesting to me, in the great final war, the beast is leading the kings of the earth with their armies, which indicates to me that there are still other governments and not just governments opposing Satan, but governments following Satan. So, I would be careful about being too alarmed about globalism for eschatological reasons. Political reasons, yes, but not so much eschatological. So, who is this beast described here in Revelation chapter 13? Well, turn with me to, to 2 Thessalonians 2, if you would.
One of the things I find very interesting is some of the most detailed things that Paul had to say about the second coming of Christ and the end of the time, end times in the world of the world were in 2 Thessalonians, and Paul was only in Thessalonica for three weeks. I've, uh, that just, that's just amazing that in three weeks they had enough of a foundation that they're asking these questions. Quite interesting. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read these words. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul speaks of the man of lawlessness who will be revealed in this great rebellion prior to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, just a couple of pages over from our, chapter in, our passage in Revelation, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And then again in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 of 1 John, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come from the flesh, come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you're from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So Paul speaks of this man of lawlessness. John speaks of the spirit of the Antichrist. But it's interesting because he says the spirit of the Antichrist is already here 2,000 years ago. And yet there seems to be an indication here in Revelation chapter 13 and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that there will, be, there will rise up this, uh, this, this man of lawlessness, this, this beast, this antichrist, who will be a counterfeit of the Lord Jesus, and the world will follow after him. Now, I find this very interesting. Maybe you don't, but I really do. Uh, one of the things that, that Bible scholars study is different authors and the, and, and the vocabulary of each author. So Paul uses certain words that Peter might not use or that, 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 that Luke might not use, and, and, and there are certain words that are distinct to, to certain writers. And so one writer might uh, use, uh, when Paul speaks of we are sons of God, he uses that a lot, uh, or we are in Christ, that's a very Pauline uh, designation of the Christian. Well, it's interesting because in John's epistles, First and Second John, he uses the term antichrist five times. But he's not writing about the Antichrist, per se. And here we come to the book of Revelation, where you, would ex- you see the beast depicted for chapter upon chapter, but he never once uses the word Antichrist. And you're asking me, Pastor Jamie, why do you think that is? Are you ready for this profound theological statement? I have no idea. <laughs> I just find it interesting. I don't know, I, you know. But, but it's a term that John alone. No one else in the Bible uses this term, but he never uses it in the book of Revelation. I just find that very interesting. So many people are so taken up with eschatology and the Antichrist and the mark of the beast, and the word Antichrist doesn't even appear in the apocalypse or the book of Revelation. 
So, again, who is this beast John's describing? Well, verse 5 tells us he's allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That 42 months, you remember, is three and a half years. And as we've said in the past several weeks, that represents the period from the time Jesus went to heaven till the time he comes back. It's a limited period of time, half of seven, so it's not indeterminate, it's not forever. And, uh, and it's a limited period of time in which this beast is given authority to wreak havoc in the world. It's the entire present age. So what he is doing, his activity is describing things that are taking place throughout the history of the church from the time of Jesus returning until his second coming, which is very consistent with what John wrote when he said many antichrists have already come, and the spirit of the antichrist is already here. But again, there does seem to be one final manifestation one final uprising where this man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, will be revealed. The beast will rise up out of the earth with these grotesque features, probably not literally, but symbolically, symbolizing the greatness of his power and the grotesqueness of who he is. Now, reformed, most reformed interpreters view this beast here as, as governments that persecute the church throughout the ages. If we look at the, the, the four initial beasts in Daniel, those were world governments. Those were empires that oppressed the Jewish people, the people of God. And so in that same spirit, we see this oppression of the people of God. And most Reformed theologians believe this is speaking of governments throughout the ages that have oppressed the people of God. Does that mean at the end there's going to be one government? Or is it going to be a coalition of governments? Who knows? We'll find out when it happens. But every government that oppresses the church is described by this beast. Now, here's some, some, some particular details. It has ten horns with seven heads and ten crowns on the horns. That's kind of a mirror image if you went back in chapter 12 and verse 3, a mirror image of the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and those heads seven diadems. And these are symbols of of power. These are symbols of authority in this present age. And each one of those horns, it says, has a blasphemous name upon it. Now, earlier in our study, we looked at, remember we looked at the seven churches in Asia Minor? And Jesus had messages for each of those churches. And many of those churches were under intense persecution many times because they refused to bow the knee and say Caesar is Lord. The imperial cult that declared that that Caesar is a god was in full bloom at that time. And people were required to declare Caesar as God and to worship him as such. And if they refused to do it, they could pay with their own lives. That's blasphemous. And so to find the government declaring itself, I am God, that's blasphemy. And that's the kind of blasphemy that is pasted across the horns of of this beast. And for the early church believers, this was something they simply could not do, even at the cost of their own lives. Now, these four powers in ancient times were, the, were Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. They were, they were vast empires, and they had enormous power, and they brought tremendous opposition and suffering to the people of God. And in John's day, the beast most likely represents Rome, 
and its oppressive, persecuting power, its blasphemy of calling Caesar Lord. And this vision incorporates all these, all these empires, all these oppressive regimes, as the dragon incites pagan governments to persecute the church. But as we move forward, the Roman government went by the wayside, and there are others now. And they continue to be incited by the dragon, by the enemy, by Satan. They continue to persecute the people of God. They continue to incite that persecution. Now, again, is there going to be one great final manifestation, one great final rebellion and uprising? I think so. I think there will be. But throughout the centuries, the beast is inciting rulers in an unseen manner, in, 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 in a manner that people didn't even realize except for the church, would look and say, that is an evidence of the beast. And in that day, people won't even necessarily realize. They, they won't understand that Satan is behind this power. Now, in verse 5, it, we read that the, that the beast is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Who, who do you think allowed him to have that authority? We read earlier that Satan has given him his authority, the authority Satan has, but who allowed, who restricted it to those 42 months? Well, the very same person who restricted the power of Satan when he demanded to be able to sift Job like wheat. And you remember the Lord said, you may have free access to all that he has, but you may not touch him. Or you may afflict him in chapter 2, but you must not kill him. The Lord reigned in, he limited, he restricted the authority, the power Satan was given over Job's life, and he restricts the authority and power over the beast. The beast would claim to have all authority and all power, and by all appearances that might be so, but the reality is God restricts it not only in the amount of his power, but also the length, the time will come when his power will come to an end. But hear me. Christian, listen to me. Do not underestimate the power of the, of the beast in our present age. We face a mighty and ruthless dragon. We face a haughty, arrogant, destructive beast. We face hatred and vile violence against the people of God. The beast is not omnipotent. He does not have more power than we do in Christ. The Bible says, greater is he that is in me than he is in the world. But hear me, greater is he that is in the world than you and us all by ourselves. We cannot stand in our own strength against the beast, against the dragon, against Satan and his minions. Now, in verse 3, it tells us that this beast is recovered from a mortal head wound, and it produces great astonishment and fear in the whole earth. And again, it's mentioned in verses 12 and 14. And it's like people are looking and saying, a mortal head wound, who's ever heard of such a thing? This must be a sign we will follow him. Now, I have read wild speculation about what this mortal head wound might be. Um, when I was in high school, which was in the 70s, there was speculation that it was John F. Kennedy, who was a Roman Catholic, first Roman Catholic president, who was shot in the head, and there were rumors that his body was lying uh, in a coma in the basement of the White House somewhere, but he was going to rise again, and the world would see that his mortal head wound was healed, and he, the Antichrist, would, you know, 
It also was Hitler who shot himself in the head, and there was speculation back after World War II. And there will be speculation like that from time immemorial until we see it. But here's this. We will know it when we see it. Stop guessing and stop trying to figure out. We'll know it when we see it. And until then, we won't know. And so we trust the Lord with such mysteries. So John describes this beast, but then he describes his vile activities. In verse 5 and 6, he utters all manner of blasphemies. He's filled with arrogance and pride. He exalts man. He rejects the authority of the one true God. Verse 7 tells us he's allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And you might say, wait a minute, Pastor Jamie, wait a minute. I thought greater is he that is in me than he's in the world. I thought that we are supposed to be overcoming well, if you go back in chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 11, you remember we had the two witnesses, which represent the witnessing church of all time. And they were allowed to witness with great power until the beast rose up from the abyss and did war and killed the two witnesses. And their bodies lay in the street for three and a half days. And people celebrated the death of these two witnesses. They even gave each other presents celebrating the victory of the beast over the two witnesses. And we said that's the persecuting governments throughout time, persecuting Christians. But then (laughs) they rose. And the world saw that they were once alive again. And then the Lord took them up to heaven where they're safe for all time. Now let me ask you this question. In that conflict between the beast and the two witnesses, who's the real victors? The beast looked like he won, but he didn't. He won a temporal victory and an eternal defeat. The enemy may be able to kill the body, but he cannot destroy the soul. He may expel us from the kingdoms of this world, but he cannot trust, touch our true citizenship, which is in heaven, because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world, and they are written with indelible ink. There's no one who could snatch us out of the hand of our Savior. So verse 7 tells us, if you follow, it says, war rose, excuse me, I'm in chapter 12, go to 13. Verse 7, it was allowed to make war. This beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Again, a, a counterfeiting of the praise given to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, where he claims this universal Authority In verse 8, he receives universal worship from all those who are not in the Lamb's book of life. You remember when Satan met with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4? Jesus was out in the wilderness to be tempted. One of the temptations was, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go to the cross. I just want you to worship me. Satan covets the worship that is due to God alone. That is, as we understand it in Scripture, that's why Satan fell out of heaven in the first place. He coveted the worship that belongs to God alone. And that will not change. I was getting ready to say that won't change until he's cast into the lake of fire from all eternity. But I'm guessing for all eternity, he'll still covet what he can never, ever have. But for a time, he will blind the eyes of men and the whole world will cooperate with his deception and, and all will worship the beast and the dragon. They will not necessarily be given over to conscious Satanism. It's not the spectacular horror film, satanic exorcism kind of things that we have 
seen in modern media is something much more deceptive, something such much more subtle. It's counterfeit money accurate. It looks real, but it's not. The world is not necessarily embracing conscious Satanism. They're embracing a religion and a rejection of God that rejects God that's incited by Satan himself. Let me ask you, who will not worship the beast? If the entire world is going to worship the beast, who will not? Well, it tells us all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the life, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, you're not going to worship the beast. You will not be deceived. God will preserve you. How do we know that? How do you know that you will stand, that you will not be sucked in and deceived, and that you will not fall for Satan's schemes? Now, let me say, Christians for a time, at, at times, do get deceived. But the Lord brings us back, and he, he, he restores us. But look with me at John 10, if you would. In John chapter 10, Jesus is, it's one of his I am passages where he speaks of being the good shepherd. John 10, verse 27. And our Lord says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. However much power this beast may have, whatever he may choose to do to the saints of God, and however much deception he is able to disseminate, he can never snatch even one, not even the weakest Christian, out of the hand of the Lord Jesus, who has redeemed us and bought us with his own blood. Philippians 1.6 says, We know that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. That assurance, that promise is true with no exceptions. Nothing can separate us from his love. But that doesn't mean we can be lazy. It doesn't mean we can be careless. Verse 9 tells us uh, that we ought to be on our guard. It gives us a solemn warning. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Do you have an ear? Then listen. Is your heart attentive to the things of God? The unbeliever is spiritually deaf. He's spiritually blind. He he, he doesn't pay attention and he's not able to do so. But the call here to the believers, to those of us whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, pay attention. Listen up. Be aware of the battle that's already going on all around us. Part of the problem with so much study of the last things is the failure to realize that the battle's going on right now. It's not a future battle. It's been raging from the time Jesus uh, returned to heaven, and it will continue to rage with increasing intensity, but it continues to rage today until he returns. Don't give in to this perception that the world in which you and I live is in any sense a friend of grace because it is not. The world is not designed to help you on your way to heaven. The world is intent on hindering you 
the value system of the world is opposed to the value system of God. Vern Poitras says it well. He says, the mass of people in the Roman Empire were attracted to emperor worship. There's this show of power and glory and majesty and all the rest, and people fell in. But the number of people seduced did not lessen the seriousness of their error. Truth is not determined by democratic vote. And if there are only one or two left that are believing the truth, it's just as true. The number of people seduced did not lessen the seriousness of their error. Likewise, communism, fascism, Hinduism, Islam, materialism, and New Age spirituality, and I want to add to his list, wokeism, may be mass movements today, but Christians must resist them. These movements are intended to undercut true faith in the one true God and the Lord Jesus. Now, in the providence of God, some believers will suffer. Scripture has told us that over and over. Jesus told us. Paul told us. Peter said, don't be surprised. And John tells us in Revelation over and over that persecution is going to happen. Some will be taken into captivity. Some will even be killed. But even that, there's no indication that things are out of control. God is on his throne, and he's in control. And he even told us ahead of time, this is what's going to happen. Well, why, if God is in control, if he's sovereign over all things, why would he allow some of his beloved people, his bride, his chosen, in whom he delights? Pastor Mark talked about this mug this morning that is his treasured possession. And I realize there are a lot of things that he treasures more than that mug, but it's an illustration. But why would God allow his treasured possession to be slaughtered by the beast? Well, Scriptures tell us that if we share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, that leads us into a deeper fellowship with him that we could not experience any other way. It also tells us in Hebrews 11 that the martyrs gain a a, a better resurrection. Now, that doesn't mean our resurrection would be better than saints who die naturally. It simply means the glory that's going to be revealed in heaven far outweighs the pain of the suffering that led to their martyrdom. And then thirdly, as believers remain faithful, as they overcome the enemy's efforts to cause them to deny their faith and say Caesar is Lord, not Jesus is Lord, or or whoever, as we overcome, even to the point of giving our lives, it brings glory to our Savior who is utterly and imminently worth dying for and worth living for. And it says, and it's true, this does call for endurance and faith of the saints. We must never, hear me, never come to expect crossless Christianity. The call of discipleship is to deny yourself daily, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. The cross is not a pretty adornment you put around your neck. It's an instrument of persecution and martyrdom. And another confidence that we have is that God not only will reward his faithful servants, but hear this. He will not fail to avenge the suffering of his saints. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In the very same way that a cup of cold water given in Jesus' name will not fail to receive its reward. There's not one instance of persecution against those who are delightful in the eyes of the Lord. Those who are his treasured possession. Not one instance of persecution, whatever it may be, will fail to be called to account. Now, let's understand. 
For some of those, the penalty for that sin is actually poured out on Jesus Christ. And you go, is that fair? Ask the Apostle Paul that question. Because his sins, his persecution of the church was paid for by Jesus. For others, they will pay the penalty themselves for all eternity. But know this, know this. Ultimately, the beast will be defeated, even as the dragon has been defeated, but allowed yet to run loose for a bit. But one day, Satan and his minions will be cast in an eternal lake of fire. So, Christian, do not lose heart. But embrace a realistic and a biblical perspective on this life and this world, which is no friend of grace, but also the life to come, the new heaven and the new earth where grace reigns and Christ shares his victory with us. Well, let's look briefly at the second symbol. We've seen the, the beast rising up out of the, the, of the sea. Secondly, we have in verses 11 to 20, the beast rising out, out of the earth. And, and, and this beast is described differently. In verse 11, it says, I saw another beast rising up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. You go, hmm, that's interesting. Until he opens his mouth, he looks harmless. He looks safe. He looks appealing. He looks gentle. As Jesus says of false prophets, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so this beast, this this beast coming up out of of the earth appears harmless, appears safe, but like the voice of a dragon, he's violent and deadly. And in verse 12, it tells us that he makes the, he exercises authority of the first beast and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. In other places in Revelation, he's called the false prophet. In fact, in, uh, in Revelation 16, verse 13, I saw coming up out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. The beast, the, the first beast would be, we'd say, the Antichrist. The second beast, the beast out of the earth, is the false prophet. I saw out of the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. This false prophet is, an, uh, is, is, a, is a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit who leads saints to worship Jesus Christ. The, 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 the false prophet, the second beast, leads those darkened in their understanding and those deceived by him to worship the second beast, the Antichrist. This unholy trio, this counterfeit trinity, as Satan impersonates God the Father, as the beast from the sea, the Antichrist impersonates God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the beast from the earth, this false prophet impersonates the Holy Spirit, the third person of the trinity. In fact, part of his deceptions are great signs and wonders performed, verse 13, very much like the Holy Spirit brought signs and wonders. And yet, the signs and wonders that is referred to here, even fire from heaven, reminiscent of what we saw on Mount Carmel with Elijah as he stood against the prophets of Baal. Now, are we to take all of these things literally or symbolically? Well, we're studying symbolic literature. There's pictures, there's symbols. And Paul is paying, or excuse me, John is painting for us a picture of just how insidious this deception is of this second beast, this false prophet. He is a deceiving spirit, even the spirit of Antichrist. Turn with me to Matthew 24, verse 24. 
Matthew 24, Jesus speaks much of the end times with many warnings. He says in 24, Matthew 24, verse 24, starting in verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. If it were possible to lead the elect astray, he would be successful in doing so by performing great signs and wonders. Hear me. A miracle is not evidence that God is behind the one working the miracle. Let me say it again. Signs and wonders, miracles, are no proof that God is behind the work of the one who seems to be performing that miracle. Some are shysters and pretenders. Jesus says there actually will be real miracles from false Christs and false prophets. But don't be taken in. This, this, this beast, this, this false prophet, is, 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 he's counterfeiting what God is doing. He, he adds to it lies, but he tries to keep it as close to what seems to be real so as to deceive men and women to believe that they actually have true religion. They're worshiping. They think they may be worshiping God, but in fact, they're actually worshiping the beast. Now, that's true of cults. That's true of these bizarre religions that have no semblance of, or connection to Christianity at all. But I'm convinced the primary reference here is counterfeit Christianity. It's the pretending, the distortion, the twisting of the gospel. Now, I would say, and this is a little bit of a political statement. You can agree or disagree. I don't care. Our country has been relatively free of the influence of the first beast. Relatively free in terms of of genuine, outright persecution of Christians. There are other places where people are being killed for their faith by their governments. We've been generally free of that level of persecution from the first beast, but the second beast has been running rampant through our country for decades, and I'd say even centuries. Distorting the truth of the gospel and giving people just enough gospel to inoculate them from the truth of God, causing churches or so-called churches to become lifeless and liberal and dead. Jesus calls them synagogues of Satan, telling people you can achieve a righteousness in your own strengths. You don't need the blood of Jesus. There's no need for sin. You just need to feel good about yourself. There's no need for repentance. There's no need for guilt or conviction or atonement. There's certainly no hell. God loves everybody. We're all his children. Those are the lies of the false prophet. Now, the reformers from the time of Calvin and Luther going up into the Puritans, they universally believed that the second beast, this false prophet, was the Roman Catholic Church. That's why our confession says that the Pope of Rome is the Antichrist, that man of sin. And it's very absolute about that. And our Constitution says, exegetically, we really can't make that case. But the Roman Catholic Church certainly has distorted the gospel. And the reason that there was such vehemence and intensity in that day is, number one, because there was this distortion taking place, this, this, this retribution taking place. The Council of Trent, which was part of the Counter-Reformation that happened in the early 1600s, had all of these statements. And one of the statements was, if anyone says salvation is by grace alone and not by works, anathema. Anathema means let him be cursed. 
And brothers and sisters, that statement still stands. It has never been overturned. That is official dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. I have friends that are Roman Catholics that I believe are converted because they don't understand what their church teaches. But the official dogma of the church says, if you believe salvation by grace, through faith alone, and not by works, you're bound for hell. That sounds like the spirit of Antichrist to me. I'm not willing to say it's the exclusive Antichrist, but it's certainly the spirit that we are warned against. Another reason why they were so absolute is because the Roman Catholic Church was not only teaching these things, it was putting to death Protestants who were teaching the truth. Calvin trained up a hundred French preachers and sent them back into France to take the good news of the gospel into that Catholic land, and the Roman Catholic Church slaughtered every one of them. That's why they thought the Pope was that man of sin, the Antichrist. It deceived people through the teaching of purgatory, that you are going to have to go and suffer in this holding place for a time, for maybe thousands of years to pay for those sins that you committed since you were baptized. Your baptism uh, cleansed the sins before that, but you have to pay for them through all of these good works and these, these, um, ab- these absolutions, these, these penances. But what you didn't get covered, you have to pay for in purgatory, but you can buy your way out of some years of purgatory by paying indulgences. You can buy years of freedom from purgatory for yourself and for others. And that's how they raised money to build the Vatican and the spectacular Sistine Chapel and all these lovely, gorgeous edifices that people flock to and say, what wonderful art that Michelangelo painted. And it was all paid for by the deception of men and women who didn't know better, believing they were purchasing their way out of heaven. I have a hard time enjoying a Roman Catholic cathedral. We were in one in Charleston. It was spectacular. And my heart was spectacularly broken once again just to see, knowing where that money came from. So, in the sense that the Pope holds out a promise for salvation, but in fact holds back men back from it, he is, that is what Antichrist does. That is the spirit of Antichrist. He preaches another gospel. And Paul says, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be anathema. And for the, for the Puritans and the Reformers, the Roman Catholic Church really was the embodiment of the false prophet. It was the embodiment of counterfeit Christianity. But the beast represents all counterfeit Christianity in all places and all times. And there's lots of it that claims Protestantism that has given over the truth of the gospel. Well, this beast incites people to worship the first beast, not the Lord Jesus and not the one true God. Now, that could involve the church compromising in such a way that encourages people to put their hope in the state, a state compromising and a state-supported religion, calling on men to trust the arm of flesh rather than the one true God. The goal of the beast, of the false prophet, of of Satan himself, is to deceive and to to inoculate people from true and saving faith. Well, very quickly, let's look at this third symbol at the very end of the chapter. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And he tells us in verse 
18, that number is 666. Every man must receive the mark of the beast on his hand or his head. He cannot engage in commerce. He can't buy or sell without it. And the Christians who won't accept it, they, they, they're locked out. And that becomes a source of persecution. I, I met some people in Lawrence years ago, and they had built for themselves a home that was concrete line bunker that could withstand, they said, an atomic bomb. They raised horses and donkeys because when the Antichrist takes over, their forms of transportation would be taken away. They raised all their own food. They tried to be totally and absolutely completely self-sufficient, so they'll be ready when it comes. <clears throat> I think that was 30 years ago. How much time and effort have they been putting into preparing for that day instead of flourishing in this day? I think that should be more our focus. I've heard all kinds of suggestions, and I'm not going to get into what might that mark of the beast be. I promise you it's not the COVID vaccine, and it's not your credit card or, or your Apple Pay on your phone. What is it? We don't know. We'll know it when it happens. But it's, again, go back. It's a counterfeit of, of Deuteronomy 6, where it says that this word will be on your forehead and on your hand. And the Pharisees misunderstood that, so they made phylacteries, these little boxes they put tiny scriptures in, carried around on their foreheads. No. The point of it is the Word of God should be in your head, and the, the law of God should be exercised by your hands and your feet. And so the mark of the beast counterfeits with your thoughts and your actions living for his allegiance. And he says, the mark is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And it tells us that it is 666. And people talk, oh, the number of the Antichrist. And you see these, uh, these movies about satanic spec uh, sp uh, uh, spectacularism. And there's 666 and the Antichrist stuff is plastered. You don't watch those movies, by the way. Please don't. But they, they, it, it's used as sensationalism. And this number, for some reason, strikes terror into naive believers like it has some kind of power. But verse 18 says it calls for wisdom, calculating the number. Wisdom, not wild speculation and not cleverness. What does the text say? It says it's the, it's, it's the number of man. In book of Revelation, remember seven's a divine number. There are seven spirits, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Seven is the number of perfection and of completeness that represents the perfection of God. And six falls one number short. It's the number of man. And repeated three times, it just repeats the utter insufficiency and failure of man and the ultimate defeat of Satan and of his beast. So instead of this terrifying, intimidating sign, 666 should be a reminder that the beast and the dragon are going to lose. Shouldn't scare us a bit. Well, let me just say, as I wrap this up, exercise some care. We don't want to miss the forest by chasing all these details of what is that and what is that. The, the book of Revelation is a book of symbols, not riddles. And the first century Christians should be able to profit just like we should. So what did they have? They had the Old Testament. They don't need complicated schemes and theories. We simply go to the Scriptures. And what is the simple explanation? That's usually the best. But be warned, one beast or the other will be and is and will always continue until Christ comes again. He will be on the prowl, whether it's persecution or deception, seeking to defeat 
or seduce or snuff out the church any way he can. But his mark testifies to his ultimate defeat. It serves as a reminder that the battle belongs to the Lord. But hear me, if you profess the name of Jesus, if he's your Lord, we're called to be watchful. There's no guarantee that you won't suffer persecution. There's no guarantee that you will not even be martyred. But what's more insidious than that is being seduced into a lifeless, heartless form of Christianity that's shot through with the world's philosophy and values. It'd be better to die for your faith than live for a non-faith. And Satan will use whatever it takes, whatever deceptions he needs to use to draw away as many as he can. In our day, what do we see? Men are lovers themselves which Paul says is an indication of terrible times. Self-esteem is valued about self-abasement, and self-examination and repentance. Self-effort as opposed to self-abandonment as we trust in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Self-gratification rather than self-denial and denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus. Please yourself. If you're not happy, then you're missing something. And you know God wants you to be happy, right? And there's, there it goes. If Satan cannot defeat you, he will do whatever he can to neutralize you and make you ineffective. And his henchmen, his beasts, are active today, right now, in every part of the world. So Jesus calls us patiently, endure. Don't just passively wait it out. Get busy running the race, doing battle, being on guard, engaging the enemy, confident that we will overcome in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot about Revelation I don't yet know, a lot. But I do know this, Jesus wins. And we who are Him, in Him, share in His victory. This morning we sang, and with this I'll close. Holy, holy, holy. And I, I'm thinking of how Satan blinds the eyes of the world. He deceives them to the truth of the Word of God. And we, he would deceive even the elect if he were able and we sang, holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee. Perfect in power, in love, and purity. Who's like the beast? There's nobody like the beast. But it's not because he has all power. It's because nobody's as wicked as he is. But there is none like our Lord. And he will come. He will conquer. He will reign. And he will take us to himself. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.